Thanks for checking out this podcast from SWGFL. We're here to help teachers and education professionals support children and young people in all that they do online. Just to avoid any confusion, in autumn of 2022, we branded our podcasts as Interface. This is actually one of our older episodes from before the big rebrand, so it might sound a little bit different. However, there's still the same top quality advice and expert support throughout. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this Safeguarding Children online podcast brought to you by SWGFL. Welcome to the SWGFL podcast, the free definitive guide helping educators keep young people and yourselves safe online. I'm Jess Macbeth here with Gareth Court. Hello, Gareth. Hello. We are online safety consultants with SWGFL, lead partner of the UK Safer Internet Centre, a world leader in online child safety, advising schools, charities, governments and tech providers around the globe. Welcome. Today, we're going to talk about technology using persuasive design. So, Gareth, how does technology make you feel? Oh, hi, Jess. Thank you for that. Nice, easy question to get us started. <laughs> Do you know what? I think, I think that's a question no one has ever asked me before. Um, that's a really interesting one. It makes me feel a lot of different things. I think it's, it's a question that probably has no easy answer because it, it probably depends on what I'm doing and how I'm feeling at the time and, and what I'm trying to get out of it. Uh, what I will say is that it it sometimes makes me feel great and and sometimes I rue the day that certain things were invented. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, how does it make me feel? I just thought it was a great question. It's a bit like, you know, are you, are you sitting comfortably? So we're talking about persuasive design, aren't we, uh, which has, has an impact on how we use technology. So so that's really what we're talking about today. Um is the, the tips and tricks that are used by uh, software companies to design products which we just can't stop using uh, and the potential impact that that has. So um, you and I have both talked about this before. What, what do you think is the best example um, of persuasive design um, that we could explain to people listening as to what we mean by it? So I think possibly the most, the most powerful one that, that we all see every day uh, is probably notifications on your on your smartphone, your tablet. So mm-hmm. so the apps on your device letting you know that something is going on that that demands your attention. Uh, so it's like loads of different things, isn't it? It could be like uh, playing a game. Say say you have like a certain amount of lives and you run out of lives. Uh, the game might send you a notification to say that your lives have refilled, so you can come back and play some more. Or um, obviously, if someone someone goes live streaming on something like Instagram, for example, it might let you know that they're live streaming um, because if you don't know now, you can't catch them while they're live streaming. Um, you know, obviously, if they don't save it afterwards, you can't watch it later. So, so it's kind of that that in the moment sometimes of the, of demanding your attention at that exact point. Uh, have yeah. you got any examples? Well, actually, funny thinking of the notification one. Um, the example I always use of that is, um, I think it was Messenger. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but certainly on my um, phone with Messenger, any unread messages are in bold, but actually, that's quite difficult to see. 
So I get really irritated when uh, the messenger logo on on the screen says it's got a little number, you know, the the, the notification of oh, how yeah. many unread messages are, and there'll be a one on there, and I'm like. Well, which message is it that's unread? And I'm scrolling through, trying to find out the one blooming message that I can just untick it. Um, and it was that dawning realization that actually it got me to go into the app. Even though <laughs> I probably read that message, I just never clicked on it. You can turn so those off, you know. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. You can actually turn those off, you know. I know. Well, that is. Yeah, we'll come on to that a bit later on, won't we? Absolutely. About what you can do to to reduce the um, effects of some of these things. The other things I've noticed actually is. Um, uh, my kids used to borrow the phone, my phone, and then they would install games. And then I would get all these notifications about the games. You know, the next thing's ready to play, etc. That used to drive me absolutely bonkers. Probably means I shouldn't have been letting them install games in the first place. Um, so that's it. Yeah, notifications is kind of the obvious one, isn't it, about getting you to go um, into the app. The other one I think that's huge is autoplay. So we've, I'm sure we've all experienced autoplay. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, uh, so for example, uh, Netflix is a prime example because uh, the, the whole concept of binge watching pretty much came from Netflix, didn't it? Because you could just queue up mm-hmm. the next episode in a box set one after the mm-hmm. other, because that's what uh, Netflix does for you. And of course, YouTube as well. Uh, unless you go and switch it off, uh, will inherently queue up other videos either from the uh, the same YouTuber or other videos related to what you're watching that that may lead you down a certain path of watching similar things because because the algorithms are kind of kicking in and. And serving you up more of more of what you like yeah and it's that thing as well they i'm sure they reduced i mean <laughs> i could be speaking out of turn here but you know it has a little counter on the bottom so you finish watching i don't know what it is the episode of the crown yeah. and and then it kind of minimizes the credits and then you see the little counter coming up at the bottom i'm sure that counter used to be longer it's it's like it's only like five seconds or something and what we we do is we, we scrabble around who's got the remote control window find the thing switch off and, you know, you don't have time to do that. And then suddenly the next one's on and you go, oh, we'll, we'll just watch the next episode. And that's it's there. Clever. It's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really clever. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it shows it's uh, the, the clever sort of uh, tips, uh, sort of tricks that are going on all the time. She said that, you know, and we, we can talk about them. We, we recognize them. We see that they're happening. But we still, in the moment, we still kind of fall into that trap, don't we? And, that, and I think that's the same with children as well. It's, a, it's an interesting point is that, you know, a lot of adults often bang on about how long young people spend in front of their screens or on devices or doing certain things involving technology and the internet. But, but actually, we as adults are, are probably just as bad, if not in some cases worse. It, it just kind of sometimes the, the, the activities that we're doing slightly differ because of, because of the different ages. But, but the techniques behind it are still very, very similar. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it's useful to try and avoid blame, really, isn't it? Because um, it's very easy to kind of pass it down as people who who lived in a time before this stuff existed, passing it down to a generation that actually have, have known nothing else. You know, they, they live yeah. in a world where all of this has been there since day one. So, uh... Yeah, and it, it totally is. It's this idea of creating um, technology that's sticky. It's, it, it's difficult to put down. Um, yeah. and, and absolutely, there's a lot of tension, um, I think, and, and, and issues caused in, in families and in homes because kids just are not switching off um, and we're kind of placing expectations on their shoulders. I think it's really... In- oh, sorry, you're going to say something? Yeah, so I was going to say, maybe this is a good time to, to introduce a bit of science. Do you like science, Jess? Sometimes. I have total faith in you, Gareth. Go on, go on, give us a bit of science. I've been pressing stop at that point. Um, (laughs) I just, seeing as we're talking about all these things, I think it's quite useful just to talk a little bit about why it kind of affects all of us, child and adult, Uh um, so easily. Um, 
just because I think it helps us to, to understand some of the things that are going on. I don't think it provides a kind of a get out of jail free card for anyone to, to kind of say, oh, it wasn't me. It was it was this. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is useful to know about these things, because once you know about it, you can you can sometimes do something about it. So mm-hmm. so quick little bit of science bit, because uh, I love all this stuff. My background, uh, I have a psychology degree, so I, I kind of love all this stuff and it involves the brain. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to go I'm not going to go too heavy. Uh, but it is useful to kind of get get a bit of a gist about how these things work. So, so mm-hmm. basically, the main reason, or one of the main reasons that we are glued to devices all the time, is because uh, the service providers, so the people that make our apps and our games and our services online, and the and the actual tech companies that design the device design the devices as well, are very good at uh, creating things that elicit dopamine in our brain. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever heard of dopamine, Jess. Yeah. Yep, yeah, heard of so, it. So most most people probably heard of it. it probably, uh, I'll explain it in a bit more detail in a second. But it's it's uh, basically a neurotransmitter. Uh, it's produced in two different areas of the brain, uh, both in the same part of the brain, but two two slightly different regions. Uh, all form under something called the midbrain. Here we are. We're going to get technical now. Okay. It's produced yeah, in the, I'm, I'm uh, hanging on. In the substantia <laughs> nigra. Ooh. is one area of the brain that's produced. And that's actually to do with um, eliciting movement. Uh, so it's, it's more sort of a physiological thing about allowing movement. And it's actually linked to Parkinson's. So people with Parkinson's have lower levels of dopamine produced from that area of the brain. And that's why they struggle with, with gross and fine motor control, because they're not mm. getting the right level of, of dopamine uh, that then helps spread signals around their brain to do with movement. So that's one area. So we'll, we'll park that one, because that one's not really involved. Okay today the other one that is directly involved is something uh, is uh, dopamine produced in the ventral tegmental area which is not wow. far away from substantia nigra um but it's actually to do more with what we all kind of know about dopamine this whole idea of reward so the idea is is that uh, dopamine gets produced when you get a reward you do something that is rewarding or pleasurable mm-hmm. makes you feel good um or you expect to get a reward and that's an important distinction there and it's how, um, if, you, if you've seen sort of uh, those studies back in the day of people like Pavlov training dogs and, and this whole idea of classical and operant conditioning, where you train animals uh, to do certain things, that's all down to dopamine, basically. So, so you get an animal to do something, you, know, you press a button to get a food pellet, they eat the food pellet, they get a hit of dopamine, they go, oh, that was nice, I'll press the button again because I know I'll get some I'll get a food pellet. Um, and it, it gets to a point where actually you don't even need to give them some food every time they press a little button because they're getting that hit of dopamine each time. They know that pressing the button is probably going to give them something nice. And and the same kind of thing happens uh, with the internet and with the, the games and the apps that we use is that you use very sophisticated techniques to get us to or get our brains, I should say, to, to stimulate dopamine, to expect something nice to happen when we do something. And that actually is where those notifications we were talking about earlier really come in because it's a very quick and easy way of getting your brain to elicit dopamine. Because if you associate notifications with something nice, you know, more lives on your game again, your best mm. friend's live streaming, uh, it's a free gift on this or your you know this offer has just come up on Amazon you might like um, you know your your favorite show on Netflix is has just put up a new episode that kind of stuff then it, it kind of draws you back in front of the screen now yes. depending on how cynical you are in this whole grand scheme I like to try to sit somewhere in the middle of this but people are very very cynical saying oh it's just, just companies exploiting uh, psychological functioning, which to a degree it is, but it's but it's all part of this wider, complicated package of of why things are free on the internet. Because yeah. if, if you're free, you need people's data, 
um, uh, the, the data is the valuable stuff. The data drives the advertising, which again generates revenue. But you can only show advertising to people if they're looking at what it is that you have to show them. So you've got to get them back in front of the screen. And that's where it kind of all links back in, because if you can get people getting hits of dopamine and, and bring them back to the screen, then they're going to see the adverts that are going to generate you the revenue, collect the data and so on. So it's, it's all kind of mixed up in this, in this package. I've, yes. I've kept you going so far, I haven't lost you. Right, I'm still with you, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still with, you. with you. I guess what I'm thinking is, so we've got this, we've got the business model, and it's it's competitive business model. It makes sense. It's it's companies that are there to make money, and so you know Netflix wants you on Netflix. They don't want you on Prime, whatever. That that totally makes sense. Um, but we've got these things really built in. So, do you know what's striking me is this idea that we've got we we alluded to it earlier. You know, you've got things on your phone these days. They tend to call them things like digital well-being tools. You know, you can turn the screen grey at night time. You can turn off notifications and sort of have do not disturbed. You can put all of these things in place to try and minimise um, your kind of use of tech so that you're more likely to put it down. But it strikes me, well, whose responsibility is it? It's almost like saying to people, we're going to do all these like cool manipulative techniques to get you in. And then we're going to throw in a few additional bits and bobs so that you can try and, um, you know, you can try and stop being persuaded by all of this stuff. So it's a bit like putting the onus on the individual, isn't it? It, it does. Yeah, I think you're right. It does put a lot of onus on the on the individual. Um, as I said, because because it's rooted in psychological and physiological functioning, it's quite it's quite a hard one to resist. Really, it takes some some strong willpower, and so I guess it's it's kind of no surprise really that that children and young people really struggle with resisting yeah. some of these things because it is a very strong physiological drive you know these things are rooted in in our our evolution really they're they're things that are there right deep down in our brain that are designed to to keep us alive because the whole Mm -hmm. idea of the reward thing is that if you if you can find food and water the things and shelter the things that keep you alive you tend to get some pleasure out of that so it it, you know stems all the way back to that that kind of that early early sort of animal instincts of just staying alive but it but it still lives in the brain today and that's that's kind of what's being played on which is but we are, clever, but slightly worrying. <laughs> we are seeing some changes coming, though, aren't we? Age-appropriate design code. That's been on the cards for a while. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, have produced this age-appropriate design code that, that should be due to, to sort of come into law uh, in 2020, uh, later in 2020. And, and it's putting an onus on the, on the, the, the designers and the, the manufacturers, the, the people that run all these online services and devices to, to do more to consider the way they collect data, uh, but particularly collecting data around children and particularly how they market to children and they design services that children may be using. Um, and in fact, there is one area there of this whole this whole concept of nudge techniques, which again comes back to the notifications, this idea that we get sent messages or messages are worded in a way to nudge us towards certain decisions both around our privacy uh or about turning certain things on or turning certain things off and and part of that um, age-appropriate design code is is very clearly saying actually you shouldn't be using that kind of language with children to push them into situations where actually they it, it kind of pushes them to get more data or to engage with something that's not designed for them or so on so there's a lot of stuff in the code aimed at, at getting um, software developers and, and device manufacturers to really consider the way they structure their services and their tools to be suitable for for children. How mm-hmm. it's going to play out, I think, in reality, we don't know yet. And and 
you know, sort of how uh, the industry is going to respond to that and how they're going to shift their services. I, we're not quite sure, mm-hmm. but it is definitely a step in the right direction because it's putting children at the heart of at the heart of this and making some clear decisions about things that are for children and things that aren't for children. I think that's something we've never really done too well on the internet before. So mm-hmm. I don't know what your thoughts okay. are on that. I think, you know, anything that we can do um, to try and reverse the sort of power differential that's going on at the moment, because it feels like as users and any kind of vulnerable user, including children, you know, we're just we're almost at the mercy of of the technology. So I, I think anything that we can put in place to start to take back a little bit of control, oh, terrible phrase, uh, is a good idea. <laughs> what I'm wondering, though, is there's almost this idea there are some things that are inherent in the design. Let me give you an example. Right. So let's say... Um, Let's say it's your birthday today and I get, uh, we're both on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook. And so I get a little notification. I wake up in the morning, a little notification. It's Gareth's birthday today. Would you like to wish Gareth a happy birthday? And so what goes through my head is I think, well, I, you know, I, I know Gareth and I'm a friend to Gareth and we're both on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook. So Gareth knows that I'm friends, which means Gareth probably knows that I know it's his birthday today. So I better wish Gareth a happy birthday, whether I feel like doing it or it's going to make me run late or whatever. So I quickly go in. Happy birthday, Gareth. Have a brilliant day. You know, whatever. Um, all fine. And then later on in the day, maybe that evening, you, uh, you've got your phone and you've got 65, <laughs> 65 <laughs> <notifications>. <laughs> happy birthday today and those people are a collection of all of the folks that you know on facebook um uh, that happened to be on facebook today and got the notification that it's your birthday so what you have to do of course is acknowledge uh and, and be a good friend acknowledge that they have wished you a happy birthday in a very friendly and, and supportive way so you have to go on to each one of those happy birthday messages and like it so, because you know that they'll then get a notification back that Gareth has liked the happy birthday. Now, to me, you know, what was all that about, really? Because, <laughs> you know, I, I, we might be really great friends and I really do want to wish you happy birthday. But on the other hand, you might be somebody that, you know, I, you're a parent. I just happened to have met a couple of times on the school run and somehow we got connected on, on Facebook. In fact, I can't remember exactly who you are, but I feel like I have to wish you happy birthday. To me, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure what design changes you can make that are going to, you know, change the the kind of basic way that it works, which is about likes and friendship and demonstrating kind of responsibilities and community and all that kind of stuff, which in a way is being kind of manipulated or harvested or or, or positively used. Um, You know, I'm not sure that we can make any tech changes in design to that. Yeah, and and that's the other interesting side, I think, that runs alongside parallel with the whole the whole dopamine thing and the, the physiological response to technology and, and using the internet and services is is the social side and you're right I don't think you can you can remove that in any way because mm-hmm. we we interact with other people as part of being human and we and we do that online as well and you know the the Facebook birthday correspondence become, becomes something you just have to look forward to well or not uh, every, every birthday on the evening of your birthday going through all of them it's almost like they need to design a tool actually to let you just like them all in bulk and then, and then move on oh, um, man. But, um, oh that's sad isn't it though oh gosh then, you're absolutely then, right that's where we're going but then, <laughs> but then this is the interesting thing the social dynamics is that those 65 people whatever sent you a birthday message they didn't send you a birthday card necessarily so there's no there's the interesting dynamics here about about that sort of validation the other one that springs to mind when you say about that is is obviously whatsapp 
and mm. how long you can leave it once someone has sent you a message and you've read it. So those two blue ticks are down there in the corner yeah. of the message. They know ticks. you've read it. How long can you give it? You know, sort of two minutes, five minutes, three hours, two weeks. It kind of depends on the person, doesn't it, in your relationship with them and the, the nature of the conversation. But again, this is this is something that, that young people find really tricky sometimes in terms of managing their friendships um, online is, is this aspect of, you know, if, you, if you're bestie, sends you a message how long realistically can you wait before you need to reply it could actually be that you're genuinely busy you can't you can't respond but are they going to get you know get the hump that you haven't got back to them within five minutes because that's kind of your unwritten rule about communication online it's really tricky well actually yeah i mean i feel that i feel under pressure so somebody invites me to something and i'm on the run you know i happen to look down i see it um and i want to have a think about it and then that starts to feel really rude, like, oh, no, I, I, I really should have got back straight away and said, yes, amazing, I'd love to come. Uh, so, yeah, actually, it does. It makes you feel under pressure, doesn't it? So, And I know that there are, you know, in certain services, there are ways you can switch off whether people can see that you're online or they can see whether you've read a message and all that kind of stuff. It gets terribly complicated. That's, that's a little bit like crossing the road when you see someone you know and you don't want to speak to them, <laughs> though, isn't it? It's, it? We're getting down that kind of line there. But you have well, yeah. We're the whole of the conversation. Yeah, which we've all done, I'm sure. But, um, but you know what? Just that, that just linked us really nicely back into the question you asked me right at the start, which is how technology makes you feel. Because, mm-hmm. because this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. All these kind of things that are going on in the in the day to day interactions that we have with other people and technology, and it and it elicits all these different emotions. I think I think there's real merit for for doing a lot more, doing as much as we can as educators to talk to children and young people about how all of this makes them feel. Because I think it's an area that we we sometimes don't. We can't sometimes just kind of assume it's it's separate to the rest of their lives. So we talk about all the things that make them feel good or bad. Uh, you know, based on like your school life and, and things they do outside of school and families and relationships and exam stress and, and this and that and the other and hopes and dreams and career aspirations, all that. We always talk to them all the time about how all these things make them feel. And yet this whole technology side of things sometimes I think gets pushed to the side. And yet it's something that makes them feel a whole range of stuff. Uh, mm. and, it, and it does every single day. So So it's something we should be talking about as frequently as we can. Yeah. The other bit that we haven't really delved on on it, think this might be another podcast episode is is the link between some of these persuasive design techniques particularly the autoplay and um, recommendations and taking you into uh, certain more extremist content but maybe we should cover that in another one i think i, th- I think we could do just a whole series on that one couldn't we really <laughs> probably um, i'm, I'm conscious what just- we do what yeah, we yeah I can say we, we've, we've talked about this a lot. We've, we've talked about sort of, you know, the, the functioning of this and some of the issues that I'm sure lots of people listening can can sort of uh, relate to and they've probably experienced themselves or know young people who have experienced these. So, yeah, I think it's about what what we can do and say with young people to help them understand this. So have you got any top tips off the bat? Well, we kind of covered a few things already. So one, one is this idea of kind of removing the heat from it a bit. You know, we all get quite tense, I think. Uh, certainly I do. <laughs> about young people using technology and not putting it down, switching off, coming for dinner, whatever. So there's an, there's an aspect of kind of removing, trying to lift the blame a little bit and recognise what's going on. Um, yeah, I think in terms of education, and obviously it's about being age appropriate, but trying to support young people to recognise some of the manipulative techniques that are going on here. And I do think there's probably an aspect there which is very much about, you know, individuals recognizing you know certain vulnerabilities so there'll be some young people that are going to be much more um 
at risk, I suppose, of, of some of these um, techniques than others. So it's about supporting young people to kind of recognise. We've mentioned as well the kind of screen time tools that you can have on devices, which I think are helpful and that, you know, they are useful. I, I, you know, I have sort of criticised, well, it shouldn't really be down to us to have to resist all these amazing techniques. But nonetheless, they are useful, this idea of kind of switching off um, and, and, and kind of reducing the impact. So that, that's a few things. What about you? Yeah, so definitely. I'm I'm very much of the opinion that the way all of this works is a little bit like a, a magician's act, a magic trick. Um, and when you don't know how the trick works, you are completely enthralled and, you know, you believe it's, it's real magic and all the rest of it. Once you understand how a magician's trick works, usually by Googling it or looking on YouTube, um, it loses a little bit of that magic, doesn't it? Yeah, it doesn't have that such great hold on yeah. you. You can suspend disbelief and still enjoy it, you know, because it's there as entertainment, it's there to be enjoyed, but you're not completely taken in by it anymore. And I think that's the same with this, as you said, of making them, making young people aware of some of these mechanisms and these tricks that are there to, to, to grab our attention, to pull us back in, doesn't necessarily stop it from happening. And you may be quite happy to go along with it on some occasions, but being aware of it gives you that choice to to spot it and to make a decision at that point rather than just kind of going along with it because that's what you've always done. I think I think that's a really powerful thing to do. So I think discussion about this is is really, really important as it's sort of talking about how the internet makes us feel. And um, we've, we've actually got at Southwest Grid two resources that we've been working on the last couple of years that, that do feature aspects of this, um, of this whole concept of social and emotional learning. Uh, one is a uh, project that we did on online hate speech where we've produced a toolkit. It's called Selma Hacking Hate, uh, hackinghate.eu. And there's a whole toolkit there uh, to help explore um, the issues around online hate speech with young people. But a big element of that is social and emotional learning. And there's lots of activities in there talking about um, uh, the emotions that we feel in relation to not just technology, but people as well. And making sense and understanding and putting language to those emotions and then being able to recognize and understand it in others, which is a big part of, of sort of uh, managing relationships online. Uh, the other one is uh, that we both worked on, Jess, is, is something called Project Evolve, which has got lots and lots of activities that are, are mapped to the digital competencies in the Education for a Connected World framework. And uh, we, we did a strand, didn't we, on health, well-being and lifestyle. And I believe one of our colleagues did some great activities there um, mm -hmm. around how the internet and technology makes you feel and, and use something called the Mood Meter, which is a, a great way of exploring this. Um, that, that was created by Yale's Center for Emotional Intelligence. And it's, it's mapping different words to different emotions and working out how you move from one emotional state to another. So, so I think emotional learning is, is really important on this. One yeah. that we haven't mentioned, and I know it's really hard for educators to do much about this, but I think it's worth mentioning, is how you separate tech and sleep. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm sure, like me, Jess, you've read a bit around around this, and the the research around technology affecting sleep is a bit hit and miss. You know, you've got you've got half saying yes, it really affects sleep, half saying maybe it's not that big a deal. Um, regardless of that, what I have seen in the last decade or so is lots of research coming out that suggests that children and young people need a lot of sleep. You know, that's that's pretty much a definitive link now. Is sleep you know, leads to good, healthy development. So if you take that research and then you've got this aspect of maybe tech affects sleep, maybe it doesn't, and some research saying kids need sleep, it's not hard to kind of suggest that actually if you can do anything to get tech out of the bedroom, then I think I think that's a really useful thing. And given that, you know, depending on the um, the age of the young people that, that listeners work with, if you work in a secondary school, you're going to have young people there whose, whose phone might be in their bedroom because it is their alarm clock it's their mp3 player it kind of performs all these functions but i think sort of talking to them about routines and how you can maybe separate those out i.e buy an alarm clock 
by an MP3 player, which I did for my teenage daughters recently, by the way, um, is, is a really good step to kind of find ways to, to disconnect from that. So those notifications and those things that we said that keep trying to grab your attention on a device aren't kind of there late at night when you need to be sleeping. So I think sleep's yeah. a really key one. Which obviously takes us into engaging parents and families. And so once again, we come into actually having to address things at a wider community or family level rather than, you know, just directly working with individual young people and yeah. expecting them to kind of um, push against the tide. Um, this sorry, is something that's probably this is something that's probably affecting parents and carers as well. You know, no doubt you know, we're, we're both parents. We get exasperated sometimes by by children not putting devices down or not doing this or, you know, you know so so I think getting them engaged is, is beneficial to everyone because helping them understand this aspect and what they can do at home to make some small changes to maybe make their own lives easier as well, I think I think is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, should we finish up? Well, we could, we could keep on going for about another four hours, I think, on could we? Yeah, but yeah, I think that's, that's probably enough for today. That's plenty of food for thought. <laughs> okay, so um, if you have a question or issue that you would like us to discuss on the podcast, please get in touch by emailing podcast at swgfl.org.uk. Gareth, do you have a recommendation of one thing to read, watch or listen to? I do. You, you might have to go Googling for it to find it, but I'm sure it'll crop, crop up pretty quickly in a search result. So I only came across this the other day, but, but fascinated uh, by this example of deep fakes. So deep fakes is a growing issue. Um, of, so basically people being able to create uh, videos of celebrities or other famous people that have never existed just using artificial intelligence uh, and enough source material. And it, it's got huge implications because basically you can make fake videos that look as good as the real thing, but that actually never existed. So there's a whole lot of implications there. But one really interesting one that came out recently because of the the general election at the end of 2019 in the UK was uh, two videos that came out that showed uh, Boris Johnson endorsing Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister and the other way around, Jeremy Corbyn endorsing Boris Johnson to continue as prime minister. And they were both deep fake videos. They were they were created uh, by sort of manipulating the videos, manipulating voices and all the rest of it. But a really interesting example, and I think a great example to bring to the classroom to talk to young people about critical thinking and reasoning skills of, of how easy it is now for people to take videos and change them into something else to create a very different message. So that's my recommendation yeah. this time. How yeah, scare us all to death. Uh, yeah. Oh, my recommendation is something fun. Uh, the Marvelous <laughs> Mrs. Maisel. If you've not watched it, watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on series two or three by now. Uh, but it's, it's, it's about a female uh, comedian. It's set, I think it's early 60s. Um, fabulous sets, you know, great dialogue, good characters. Uh, that's my kind of binge, binge-worthy um, but, but don't binge watch it was what we're saying yeah, exactly. be aware of the countdown timer have the remote ready and then you can choose whether or not you want to watch another episode you will want to watch another one okay so <laughs> well okay we shall finish up thank you for listening to this swgfl podcast if you found our podcast helpful please spread the word to your fellow educators this free podcast is available on most casting apps as always, if you have a query about an online safety issue affecting a young person, yourself or your organisation, you can contact the Professionals Online Safety Helpline at helpline at saferinternet.org.uk or by calling 0344 381 4772. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the podcast, don't forget to drop us an email at podcast at swgfl.org.uk. A better internet starts with us. Goodbye. This Safeguarding Children online podcast has been produced by SWGFL. 
Southwest Grid for Learning is a charity that has specialised in online safety for nearly 20 years and is one of the three partners in the UK Safer Internet Centre. The UK Safer Internet Centre is the national centre and one of 32 European Safer Internet Centres. For more information and terms of use, please visit www.swgfl.org.uk. Thanks for listening.